Morning, New Hope family. Glad that you're here. If you're first time with us, welcome. If you're watching online at home, glad you're part of it too. And shout out to the people that are in the quad watching right now. I really want to encourage you to plug into the Samaritan's Purse Opportunities. It's a great world relief organization that we're really pleased to be part of. So I know a lot of the gift boxes for the Operation Christmas Child went after the first service, but I know they still have more boxes back there. And then all these individuals that are wearing orange shirts, they'd love to talk to you. And Larry will be willing to talk to you about the mission projects that are come up, coming up as well and the way that they were able to serve and give you an idea of how you can plug in, maybe even helping locally to help restore things. Well, I have a, a fun announcement for you this morning, and we're going to do it through a slide, and I'm not quite ready for them to put it up on the screen, but I, I want you to prepare yourself, get ready for some loud cheering. So Jody, well, how about if you go ahead and put up this slide announcing the building? Isn't that amazing? So if you see a smile on my face that won't go away, that's part of why. Um, if you're new here, we started building this building a few years back, uh, about two and a half years ago, I guess, at this point in time. Um, three and a half years ago, started raising the money for it, believing that God would bring all the money together. It's a seven and a half million dollar project along with the purchase of the land. The land itself was almost a million dollars and then the construction of this facility. And we didn't really know how God was going to provide, just believing that because he was growing the church and we needed more space, he would meet the need. In August, it was down to already about $65,000 left. And then more gifts came in over the course of the last month and a half. And so about a week and a half ago Thursday, Kyle was able to write a check for $15,000, which was an easy check to write to pay off the facility. So you're sitting in a debt-free building and we're just really thrilled about that. Yeah. It's an amazing story to tell. God knows how to provide, doesn't he, church? He knows how to meet needs. Well, I'm going to encourage you this morning to go to the book of Luke, if you would. We're going to pick up where we left off last week of the parable of the rich man who went to hell and the beggar Lazarus who went to heaven. And it's a very detailed story, and we're going to dig into it a little bit further. But I can assure you that um, we're not going to get through the whole parable today. This is going to feel like the book of Romans. It's going to take a little bit longer. So next week, we'll come back to it again, and you'll find why we, we put it off to next week to finish it out um, here's what I want to do before we jump into the parable. Uh, I want to pray with you that God would help us, specifically our church family, whether you're watching from home right now or you're here in the auditorium, that he would help us to stay away from the distractions so that we would be focused on the things that he's called us to do. And here's why I say that. In the midst of everything going on in our world, in our society, it's good to be part of it. It's good to be involved, but it's easy to be distracted and get more attention given to whether or not you should wear a mask than it is to the things that God called you to do. It's a very dangerous place when we start giving more attention to the things of this earth than we do the issues of heaven and hell. And we can find ourselves putting a lot of energy into things that could easily distract us when God said there's a bigger issue at stake and you need to be aware of it. So we go back into this parable with that thought in mind, but before we do that, I need to pray with you about these distraction issues. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, myself among everybody who's part of the service and everybody who's part of the church, I, I find myself easily distracted. I know that's the heart cry of most of us. And it's so easy in a service like this, Father, to find ourselves in the place where we're recentered again especially as we sing such simple songs like you love us and this we know. But the reality is Monday's coming and Tuesday and Wednesday and we're going to get caught up in political conversations and hygiene conversations and who knows what. God, I know you put us here for a purpose and we have to live out our purpose here on this earth. But at the same time, God, keep us from being distracted I pray that especially as we come into this story where Jesus raises the stakes and shows us what's really important. 
So God, I ask you to help us to remember who's in our social circle, who our friends are that might not understand. I pray for that with an intense heart that you, you would prick our hearts where you need to. I pray for that in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, in all of human history, the preeminent lead teacher on the issue of hell is Jesus. He spoke about it more than anybody. He talks about it constantly. It's on his lips. All four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record Jesus saying it over and over and over again. He talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. And so the New Testament writers pick up on that. And from Acts all the way to Revelation, they all write about the issue of hell. It's consistently discussed. So it shouldn't be avoided in our age. It shouldn't be something to be set aside and skipped over. Because Jesus found it to be important, we need to find it to be important. So here's where I'm going to start with you. Where we left off last week, we were just about halfway through the parable, and I'm just going to review with you the verses real quickly that frame it, especially if you weren't here. This will help you. You'll see this on the screen. Luke 16, 19, now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day, and a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. I need to remind you very quickly that the rich man is not in hell because he's rich. And Lazarus is not in heaven because he's poor. That's a mistake a lot of people make when they read this. Just got to keep that in the forefront of your mind. I'll remind you of that again. Jesus presents this parable with a really intense seriousness. But at the same time, it drips with pure love. And I can say that authentically because he would not have warned us. We would not even receive this story if it wasn't for the love of God. God loves us so much, he wants us to know, therefore he brings the warning. So Luke gives us the backdrop on what's going on in verse 14. He says specifically that the Pharisees are listening to Jesus talk and they're scoffing at the things that he's saying as he's talking about money issues. Look with me on the screen, Luke 16, 14. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him because they're the lovers of money. They just heard the parable of the manager that we looked at two weeks ago who was misusing his boss's money. And because there was some embezzlement going on, and they assumed that Jesus was directing the parable at them, the Pharisees, and they were right, they began scoffing at the things he said. See, their view is that people who have money, people who have wealth, those are the ones who are really blessed of God, and therefore, because they're blessed of God, got a, they've got a golden ticket, and they're punched for heaven. They're on their way. They must be really, really righteous people because God likes them a lot because he's given them a lot. So because they're scoffing, Jesus begins telling this parable that we're looking at. Let me give you a quick overview in case you weren't here, just to remind you of what we looked at. This very wealthy man's dressing in purple robes, very expensive clothing. He's throwing parties every day like an ox roast it describes on a daily basis. He lives in great splendor. He has enormous parties. He invites all of his friends and family to come in. And out at his gate at the portal of his mansion is Lazarus the beggar. And Lazarus was just hoping for scraps of food from his table. But as people leave the party, they step over him on the way out. They pay no attention to him, let alone the owner of the property. So Jesus is going to put this individual's wickedness on display, not because he's so rich, but because he's so self-indulgent, it reveals what's really going on in his heart. We've said for a long time here, what you believe about God determines what you do next. 
what this man believes about God is revealed in the way that he lives out his life. It determines what he does next. Verse 22, now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. Now, it's not surprising that Lazarus dies. Everybody dies at some point. But the final degradation is the silence. See, the rich man is buried, Scripture says. But Lazarus is very likely thrown out on the dump pile. They had landfills in their day too. It's called the Valley of Ben-Hanam. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. But that's where they would haul the refuse of their city. Dead animals, dead donkeys, something dies with a disease, they haul it out to the valley, and somebody's there to tend to it, and there's a fire constantly burning. There's a fire that won't be quenched. And so that's the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. Now, for the rich man's part, even though he had everything, even though he lived in luxurious lifestyle, even with all his privilege, he can't buy another day of life. It's time to go. So we learn that there's been a reversal in what happens to these two individuals. The last has become first. In eternity, Lazarus is now in a place of comfort. So it says, you see just these two words on the screen, Abraham's bosom. He's at the side of Abraham. That's what that word means, bosom. He's sitting right next to him. So it's evident that Lazarus belongs to God through faith that he has a relationship with God, and because he has a relationship with God, he's at this place of rest. He's what you might call an Old Testament saint. You think of Moses, you think of Noah, you think of Daniel. You think of an individual like this. He's got a relationship with God, and so he's at this place of rest. So we find a son of Adam created in the image of God, reclining inseparably with this great patriarch, Abraham. What about the one with great wealth? What happened to him? Well, the Pharisees have already drawn their conclusion. They believe that he's in eternity too, that he's in heaven. They expect him to be right there with Abraham. But Jesus' story doesn't go that way. Verse 22 says, the rich man also died and was buried. And then verse 23, in hell, in Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom, meaning at his side. Remember, Jesus' audience now is the Pharisees, and they're thinking, what? How could this be? He's a son of Abraham. He's a Jew. He's obviously righteous. He's really blessed with God. This is shocking to them because to them, wealth indicated righteousness. But he's in hell. What a stunning turn of events. Sitting next to Abraham is the very person whom he refused at his own gate. And to be with Abraham, that's the highest goal of everyone living in that period of time in Israel. Of all the millions who have died from Adam all the way through to Daniel, even to Micah, they would want to be sitting next to Abraham. And there he looks and he sees Lazarus. So just bear with me down in that statement, verse 23, in Hades, in hell, he lifted up his eyes being in torment. Throughout our culture, our culture is not unlike many other cultures. Our culture, many deny the reality of hell. They think it's just a fiction of someone's mind. Or they rationalize it away saying, a loving God would never do that. A loving God would never send someone to a place of eternal torment. He just wouldn't do that. That's not the God of the Bible. They don't stop in saying that. They don't stop to consider that's the very thing that Jesus died to protect us from. It's the whole reason that he came. Why die on a cross for our sins if he's not saving us from something? So he's describing here, Jesus is describing exactly what's in store for anyone who refuses him. So throughout the course of my life, you can imagine, I've had a lot of people that I've interacted with about heaven, and typically when I ask the question, if I've asked it of individuals and say, do you expect to go to heaven when you die? This is the response I usually get. Well, I'm a pretty good person. I certainly hope so. Hoping in hope won't get you to heaven. Hope is just something that's basic to all of humanity. Hope in its most basic form is common. All of us live with some degree of hope. 
It's the way that we cope with anxiety. It's a gift of God. It's something He wired into human nature, the gift of hope. When things break apart on our planet, when relationships go south, when jobs don't work out, when our health goes down, we live with a degree of hope. We look to the future hoping that it will be better. We look to 2021 thinking it's got to be better than 2020, right? I think it was just like yesterday I was standing here in January on the platform saying, I can't wait for 2020. What a fantastic year it's going to be. It shows you I'm not a prophet, right? We look to 2021 thinking it's got to be better than this last year. We hope. So we set our hearts on better things, for better relationships, for new careers, for fresh opportunities, a better hope than the reality of the past. It's innate to human nature. So if it wasn't for God's gift of hope, we'd be stuck in a repeat of Groundhog Day over and over and over, reliving it constantly. And it would be a horrible place to be stuck because we'd be stuck in today's pain. The Bible says where there's no hope, misery sets in. So we'd have to agree to exist without hope would make for an excruciating existence. Take all the bad things that have ever happened to you in your life. All the distress, all the anxiety, all the fear, all the busted relationships, all the disappointment that has ever happened to you, all the anxiety and boil it into one experience and experience it to the full and then remove hope. Remove hope that it will ever get any better. That knowledge would intensify suffering exponentially and that is an element of hell. That it's never gonna change. So verse 23 says, in Hades, in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And we said last week that Hades is the place of the dead. When you read the Old Testament, you see the word Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. It's speaking of the same thing. Hades, Sheol, hell, they're three different names for the same place. It's just an interchange based on the language that's used. So how do we understand Hades? It's this intermediate state before the final judgment. Think of it like a holding cell, a place where individuals are held until the judgment day. So New Testament and Old Testament scholars had this thought. And those who lived at the time of Jesus, the rabbis, they understood it this way. Jesus knows his audience, the Pharisees, they think this way. So he's teaching to an audience who understands it this way. They think of Hades as having two divisions to it. On one side is bad, and the other side is good, and there's a great gulf in between. One side for the Old Testament sinners, the other side for the Old Testament saints. We'll come back to that. So for this one who's on the sinner side, he's immediately conscious of his eternal status. And it's quite clear that Jesus is being very deliberate in these details because he's using physical bodily terms when he describes this parable. He talks about tongues, and he talks about fingers, and he talks about eyes, and he talks about nose, and he talks about taste, the ability to be soothed from water. He talks about a conscience. He's using very physical descriptors here to describe this experience, yet he leaves one thing out. The first thing he allows to surface here is not stated verbally, it's stated subtly. Pay attention to this because culture has reshaped your thinking around this. The story that Jesus is accounting to us refutes the thought of soul sleep. The thought that people die and then go to sleep and just wait and wait and wait for their reward. He's saying they're immediately conscious, completely conscious, more aware than anything they've ever been aware of before. How do we know that? Watch where the flow of this goes. Verse 24, and he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. It's remarkable to me that this one who previously had no need in his life, no need whatsoever, didn't need a thing, he now has need and he begins to cry out to heaven. 
Abraham, will you have mercy on me? Just send Lazarus. I, I just need some relief. And there's just a hint of arrogance going on there. They think Lazarus is his servant who's going to come serve him. I, I just want some water, just a drop. Obviously thinking Lazarus has ex access to water. What a change from his life of luxury. The word that he uses here is this first Greek word you see in your notes, and it, the Bible uses interchangeably with agony and with torment, and you see it there, oduno. It, it's speaking about the, the grieving, and it's speaking very specifically in the Greek language about emotional pain, physical pain, conscious pain. And the same word is used multiple times throughout the Bible, especially when it's talking about demons and what demons would experience in hell. Let me give you an example of this. Jesus is interacting with some individuals who are demon-possessed. They come running out of a cemetery towards Jesus, and they begin speaking to Jesus. Matthew 8, 28, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come to torment us? There's the word. That's the word agony. The word that you just saw, have you come to torment us before the time? Or when God brings the final judgment to planet earth and deals with those individuals who will be cast into the lake of fire. Look with me at this one from Revelation chapter 20. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented. There it is again. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, the lake of fire, that's the permanent place after the judgment. That's where they're thrown for permanent damnation. So if the lake of fire is the permanent holding place, that means Hades is the holding cell, what we call hell or Sheol or Hades. And the suffering is very, very real. Throughout our culture, as I was saying earlier, many deny the reality of hell and they want to dismiss it by saying, God is love. He would never send anyone to everlasting damnation. But in revealing their heart that way, here's what they're revealing. They're revealing that they do not understand the holy love of God. God's love is perfectly holy. It's perfect, meaning it's not full of shallow sentiment. It doesn't change with the wind. God's love never changes. So if sin is rebellion against a holy God, then a holy God has to do something with those who sin. To separate those who prefer sin over a holy loving God is giving those individuals exactly what they're asking for. It's what they want. They may not understand that's what they want. They need information. So in truth, according to what the Bible is explaining here, people send themselves to hell in the sense that they reject the love of God, refusing the love of God, and I would add, refusing the Word of God. You'll see what I mean by that. So Jesus is being really intentional here. In desperation, He's calling out to Abraham, and He's addressing him as Father. Father Abraham! Why would a Jew do that? I'm in the line of Abraham. I'm a descendant of Abraham. Abraham, you're my father. You're the great patriarch. And he's appealing to him that way. And Jesus intends for the Pharisees to understand it that way. Because they see themselves in the line of Abraham. And what's his cry? Father Abraham, I am in agony in this flame. Using that same word that we just looked at. Now, this concept of torment, this agony, is defined by a word that's used very specifically in context with this. It's a descriptor, aenos, and, and it's talking about the length of time. So when the word eternal or everlasting is used in the Bible, aenos is used to describe it. So individuals will look at hell and would say, well, it's, it's Ienos, which is describing a specific period of time. It doesn't mean that people will be in hell forever. Missing the reality that Ienos is actually used for eternal father, eternal everlasting life. 
eternal hell. It's the same word. So you can't have one that's time-limited and another one that's not. Either hell is time-limited and heaven is time-limited, or hell is forever and heaven is forever. If, if there's not an everlasting hell, then there's not an everlasting heaven. So we're talking about conscious torment for an individual who's in an eternal place. Now, for a believer who dies, they go immediately into the conscious joy of heaven and with a whole lot of information. But for the one who's damned, they immediately go into this place of experiencing pain and torment. And one aspect of that is the fire that Jesus spoke of. How do I understand that fire element? How do I put that piece together? Let me give you a descriptor from the screen. You'll see Matthew 25, 41. He will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, Jesus spoke about this often. In the New Testament, the fires of hell are called the place of Gehenna. And that's referring to this valley of Ben-Hinnom, the valley outside of the city of Jerusalem where people would haul their rotting donkeys and their rotting cattle who might have died of disease, and they're piled, and someone tends to that valley, and they begin burning. They burn all the refuse that's there, and, and the stench was horrible. If the wind was just right, you could smell it on the other side of the city. But the people in the city could look out over the valley and see the smoke arising and the fire that would never go out. But Jesus uses that valley of Ben-Hanam for a metaphor when he says there's a fire in hell that is never quenched. And then to add to that, both Isaiah in the Old Testament and Mark in the New Testament, they begin saying things like there's a worm that will not die in hell. How do I understand that? Well, look with me on the screen at this. Isaiah 66, 24, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men whom have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh, or Mark 9, 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Let's put the pieces together on this now. This is crucial. You've driven down the road systems in Michigan, you see a dead possum, you see a dead raccoon, sometimes a dead deer. Eventually, it's just going to be a skeleton. The coyotes work on it, the vultures work on it, but from the inside is a rotting where the maggots, the worms work on the body. Sorry to be so gross, but this is the descriptor that they're using here in Scripture. Talking with people in between this service and the 9 o'clock service, individuals approached and said, do you think that's literal? Like a worm that will not die? Here's the picture that's being painted. The, the maggot never goes away. It's always eating on. That's the picture that's being painted here. So when someone says, do you think that's literal? I'm saying, I have no idea. But that sounds horrible enough as it is. What I know is that the Bible uses word pictures in some place where we can't comprehend how bad it is. So if it's not that bad, it's actually worse than we can imagine. So we've got this individual who cries out, Father Abraham, just have him dip his finger in water and cool off my tongue. I'm in agony. And I find this really profound and incredibly enlightening. And he's pleading as a Jew, knowing that his lineage is of Abraham, and it's the very issue that Jesus pushed on the Pharisees about. When Jesus was in dialogue with them, they would often brag about being descendants of Abraham as though that earned them a right to heaven. Jesus turned to them at one point and finally said, God can make these rocks into the children of Abraham, to which they wanted to stone him for. So it's not your lineage that gets you in. It's interesting that he put that right in the midst of the story. So this one not only knows he's in hell, but he knows that's where he belongs. That's a pretty bold statement to make. How do I know that? He not only knows he's in hell, he knows that's where he belongs because he's not protesting how he got there. He knows he deserves it fully conscious that he's rejected God. So he's just pleading for relief. I just want mercy. 
So in hell, it's fully aware, fully conscious, a full realization, I'll use this Old Testament term, of his wretchedness. He's just saying, I just want relief from this. I just want out. Because hell is a confrontation of truth, and the truth is pounding on him with his eternal destiny. He's not begging to get out. He's begging for relief. And I said it's striking that even in hell, his mindset is that Lazarus's purpose is to come serve him. But he's also revealing to us that his brothers know Lazarus as well. You'll see that as it comes up here. He knew Lazarus by name, indicating he knew who was laying outside his gate all that time. Verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And most people come to that verse and they're incredibly confused by it. Sounds like an exchange system. Like, if I got a good life here, I get bad things there. If I got a bad life here, I get good things. How do I understand that? Notice, first of all, that Abraham is continuing this terminology of family. He's acknowledging, yep, you're a son. You're the child of Abraham. But, child of Abraham, you need a reality check. And the reality check is this, Lazarus cannot comfort you, and he gives two reasons why he can't comfort him. The character of the man and the character of his eternal state. Check this in the story. This man who had everything, had great wealth, had lived for the things of the earth, and he experienced an amazing life. His wealth amounted to a lot, but he lost his soul. What did Jesus ask in the book of Mark? What good does it do to gain the whole world if you lose your soul? And Jesus is asking that question. How are you doing with that? How do you answer that question, New Hope? How do you respond to that question? What good does it gain to gain the whole world and lose your soul? There's a word that's really significant in the midst of that verse in verse 25. There's an adjective It's the word your, and it's very significant because of this. He's not just saying, you received good things while you were on earth. He's saying, you received your good things, meaning he had that which he chose to pursue. He determined his destiny by leaving God completely out of his life, and now neither his character nor his destiny can be changed. So no, Lazarus can't fix this for you. Not only is help unavailable, the judgment is irrevocable. Do you notice there's no suggestion whatsoever of purgatory? He's not saying you you just do enough laps around the track and then we'll let you out eventually. You can't find the word purgatory or the concept of it in the Bible any place. It doesn't exist there. That would feed the thought that you could somehow earn heaven, which is totally contrary to Scripture. You can't earn it. So I want you to check this. He could have spent time with the things of God and taken care of his business and his family and engaged in helping those who are in need, but he chose to party, and so he made choices. He chose to be absorbed with the purple robes and with the fine linens and with the big feast. He chose what he wanted, and now he has to exist eternally with his choices because choices have consequences, right? Choices have consequences. So each of us should be asking ourselves this morning right now, do I have that in my life? Whether you're a believer or a non-believer, ask yourself, do I have purple robes in my life? Am I chasing after something so much that I'm neglecting the thing that God called me to do? For a a non-believer, a person better deal with that issue on an eternal level, like who am I before God? But for an auditorium full of believers, and I know hundreds watching online, ask yourself this question, as a believer in Jesus, do I pursue purple robes over the things of Jesus? Do I have things backwards? This is why I need to remind you, the rich man is not in hell because he was rich, nor is Lazarus in heaven because he's poor. Abraham was very, very wealthy, and Lazarus is sitting right next to Abraham. It's not about the amount of your bank account. 
It's the focus of the life that's at issue here, and the actions reveal the heart. What you believe about God determines what you do. His actions reveal. It's revealed who He is before God. Go with me to verse 26, and beside all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross from there to us. This gets a little dicey. A great chasm, cosma, is in your notes this morning, Greek word. When I think of this, I think of the Grand Canyon. You got the South Rim, you got the North Rim, you got this big void in between, this big valley. The Greek language speaks very specifically that there's a sense of permanency, meaning there's no passing from one side to the other. And he has complete awareness, and this man in hell comprehends how it is with Lazarus. He comprehends that Lazarus has access to water, and he's got a memory of the past things. He's got a knowledge of the future things, but there's no crossing the chasm, just the reality of what is. Where you are is where you're going to stay. So how do I understand this description in the Bible from Jesus' own mouth of this Hades component? This is the way the ancients would have understood it and the way that the Pharisees sitting in front of Jesus understood it and the way that the rabbis taught it, that there were two components. The one component was where the unrighteous would go, the other side, the other rim of the canyon, if you will, where the righteous, the believers would go. One a place of torment, one a place of comfort. So here's how you frame it in your mind. When an Old Testament saint died, from Adam all the way through to Micah, where does Daniel go when he dies? Jesus hasn't died on the cross. There's no one who's lived without sin except Jesus. That means Daniel had sin in his life, what happens to Daniel when he dies? Where does he go? Where does Esther go? Where does Ruth go? Where do all the saints of the Old Testament go when they died? The descriptor here is that their soul would go to this place of comfort, Abraham's bosom, because they believed by faith in a God who would redeem them. But for those who sinned, those who rejected God, and died without God, their soul would go to Hades as well, but we'll say the south rim of the canyon, okay? So when Jesus died, he not only paid your price of your sins, do I hear an amen on that one? Not only paid for your sins, but he prayed, paid for all previous sins as well, past, present, future. That's why I tell you, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, He wipes out your past. He takes care of all your sins in the future, and He takes care of your sins that you committed last night and today. Amen. His work on the cross was that complete. That's why He could say, it is finished. He dealt with all of the sin. So let's back that up with Scripture. That's not just Mark espousing things. Look with me on the screen. Romans 3.25, Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, this was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. Talking about the Old Testament, if that's not clear enough for you, go with me to Hebrews, Hebrews 9.15. For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant, speaking of Jesus. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions, it's a big word for sin, for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, that's the Old Testament, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Meaning when Jesus died on the cross, all the sins of the Old Testament saints were removed because of what Jesus did on Mount Calvary. And as a result, we have Ephesians 4, verse 8. And I need to show you this. Maybe you've never read it this way before. Look with me on the screen. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Watch verse 9. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself, also he who ascended afar above all the heavens so that he might fill all things, meaning this. 
before the resurrection on Easter morning, but after the crucifixion on Good Friday. While his body still lay in the tomb, Jesus descends into Hades, announcing the atonement for sins are finished. It's complete. I've paid for everything. And at his ascension, the souls of the Old Testament saints are caught away into paradise, therefore leading captivity captive. That's why he could say to the thief on the cross, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. That's how you understand this. Now, this individual in the story, he, he knows where Abraham's going with this, verse 27, and he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. And he's talking about Lazarus. If Lazarus can't come cool my tongue, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. So with conscious awareness, he remembers his family members and that they're lost. And occasionally I hear people say, I know I'm going to hell. I don't care. It's going to be such a party. I can't wait. I'm going to hang out there with my friends. Where's that coming from? It didn't come from the time frame of Martin Luther. I can guarantee you that. Pop culture has driven that thought. Let me give you an example. I, I know I probably pick on Billy Joel too much, but I'm just going to give you an example from his song. Sorry, this one's going to be stuck in your head all day, not long. Listen to these phrases. They say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints because sinners are much more fun, right? Where's that coming from? Well, that, that's pop culture. And you have to fight against that because you live in this world. You have to fight against that thought that maybe that's reshaped my thinking because culture makes an attempt to reshape truth. There's no friendship in hell, it's utter loneliness. And even though it's utter loneliness, this guy doesn't want his brothers to come there. He's not saying, I can't wait till my brothers get here. He's saying, don't let them come. I don't want them in this place of torment because it's not a party. The most vile of God's creation are the fallen angels, demons. And demons don't want to be there that's why they go to Jesus and say, if you come before the time, we don't want to be there. So his thinking is that if a witness comes back from the dead, maybe then. So he's implying that his brothers knew Lazarus also. That they stepped over him on their way out of the mansion after the banquets. That they would recognize him. They know that Lazarus died. Maybe they would be freaked out enough if they saw Lazarus come back from the dead that they would believe and listen to him. But this is Abraham's response, and this is where we're going to wrap it up today. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Meaning, this previously very wealthy man had access to the Word of God. They have Moses and the prophets. Well, if they had them, this guy certainly had them. He had the witness of Scripture. Circle back to that in just a second as we wrap this up. Many people wonder about those people who were born before Jesus. And they think, what about those individuals who lived before Jesus brought the gospel? What about those who were living on this planet before that time? When Jesus says Moses and the prophets, it's an ancient way of referring to the Old Testament. Moses represents the law. The prophets represent Daniel, Jeremiah, David, all the things that were going to happen. It's an ancient way of referring to Old Testament truth. So here's what Jesus is teaching us, that the Old Testament information is enough to understand who man is before God. Scriptural revelation is complete, combined with natural revelation of all the things that God created that He's given us. Jesus is saying in the big picture, Moses and the prophets, they preach, they teach. It gives us a responsibility before God. We all will stand before him and we're going to have to answer for that. So Abraham responds this way logically. He says, there's only one thing that will keep your five brothers out of hell. There's only one thing that they need. They need to hear the word of God and respond in faith. 
believing that what God called them to is what they're supposed to do, not just hearers of the Word, doers of the Word. Let me back that up with Scripture. James 1.22, but prove yourself doers of the Word, not merely hearers only who delude themselves. Or Luke 6.46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Or Romans 2.13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. It's not talking about works righteousness, by the way. It's talking about there's got to be fruit in your life. There's got to be some degree of evidence. Is it real? Or did you just say, I believe in Jesus, so therefore I'm in? The Jews heard Moses, and they heard the prophets read every Sabbath. They showed up for church way more than you show up for church. They showed up in the synagogues. The Pharisees never missed a service. There's no such thinking in their mind of not being at Sabbath celebrations. And they heard the word taught, but it didn't translate to action in their life. It's not enough to hear it. You have to act on it. And God himself is telling this story. And God says, if they don't listen to the scriptures... I got nothing for them. If they don't respond to that, they're not going to be persuaded. Americans go to church over and over and over again, and many hear the word. But where's the fruit? Where's the evidence? That's why God's telling this. Look with me on the screen, Psalm 19.7. It is the law of the Lord that is perfect, converting the soul. What's being said here is the power is in the Scriptures. The power is in the Word of God. It's not about Mark Kring coming up with new techniques or being more clever in his illustrations. It's not about the church teaching in new ways to communicate. It's about the Word of God and the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God. I'm glad you agree with that. It's a biblical truth. This man is in hell forever because he refused the very thing that would have led him to faith. And Jesus is telling us the only way to escape hell is to listen to the message, believe the message, and act on the message. He's making it so clear. If this has been heavy to this point, just bear with me one more moment. If you're looking for happy Sunday, that's next Sunday. And it will be happier to hear this. The New Testament describes hell as a fiery place. It speaks of an outer darkness, like being in a black abyss in the most infinite corner of space, utterly lonely, utterly separated, a place of pain and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those are the words earthly authors can use to describe something that we've not seen. And it will never, ever change. There's no hope that it could change. Sooner or later, new hope. You have to begin to see the people whom you do life with through that lens. The people whom you work with, the people who are in your family. You have to see them through this lens and view people with this in mind, that no one will ever cease to exist. We are eternal creatures. The question is, where do we go, heaven or hell? I'm going to close with C.S. Lewis' quote that he summed it up pretty well. He said this in The Weight of Glory in 1942. Every human being is in the process of becoming a noble being, be noble beyond imagination, or else, alas, a vile being beyond redemption. The dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. It is immortals that we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. 
If these things that we discuss today don't move you to want to talk to people about Jesus, I just have one more verse for you. Perhaps this final verse will motivate you. 2 Thessalonians 1, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. It's hard news, isn't it? That's hard news. There is only one way to heaven, and that is through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in his death for your sin. He will wipe out your past, your present, and your future sins and give you a completely new beginning, a clean slate. So to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior is to be saved from hell. And that makes for a happy Sunday. So I'm going to encourage you next week when you're back, if you're back for the 11 o'clock service, we gave these out in the 9 o'clock, and they wiped them all out, and they took them home with them. Sorry, there's none left. This is called World Religions Made Easy. It's just a quarter of an inch thick. And what it does is it tells you about the 30 leading world religions and what each one believes in very succinct paragraphs If you're going to engage in conversation with individuals about what you understand that the Bible says, it'd be good to know what they think before you go into that conversation. So next week, look for these. They'll be on the information table. You can pick one up when you go out the door. I want to encourage you this morning that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, heaven is your destiny. That is the message of Christianity, right? Okay. Let's pray with that in mind. Father, I thank you for an auditorium full of believers, but I recognize there might be individuals who are not yet believing and they're not sure what to do at this point. Lord God, for those who might be questioning, maybe someone watching at home, I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will remind them that you will forgive us of all our sins if we just ask. So if you find yourself in that place right now and you're you're wondering what to do, ask God, call out to Jesus right now. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Just tell him that you believe. I would encourage you to follow up by talking to one of us here at the church, and we'll we'll disciple you and tell you what to do next. But call out to Jesus. Ask him for a forgiveness of your sins. On the basis of that, he said he will act. Father, I pray for every one of us that we would take seriously the responsibility you've given us to be bold about the truth of an eternal destiny, what it looks like with you and what it looks like without you. Do your work among your people, Father. I pray for your anointing on this and the power of your Holy Spirit to work through us because we cannot do this on our own. I pray for this in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, amen.